You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Grace Romine. And I'm Lucinda Lonick. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, October 27, 2022. Later in the program, we have the latest edition of Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the WFHB Local News and the League of Women's Voters of Bloomington and Monroe County. More in the bottom half of our program. Also coming up in the next half hour, the MCCSC School Board voted to approve the approximate $157 million budget in their October 25th meeting. More in today's headlines. But first, your State House Roundup. Good afternoon. You're listening to the State House Roundup on the WFHB Local News. I'm Grace Romine. The Indiana Secretary of State race remains one to watch for the upcoming election cycle. Democrat Destiny Wells faces off against Republican Diego Morales and Libertarian Jeff Maurer. Morales, who did not participate in the debate earlier this month, faces sexual assault allegations. An anonymous woman in the Republican Party came forward saying Morales sexually assaulted her 15 years ago. Another woman also accused Morales of sexual assault, both of which first came to light in an interview published by political writer Abdul Hakim Shabazz. Morales denies the allegations, saying in a statement, quote, As a husband and father, I understand sexual harassment is deplorable and can leave devastating scars. The claims being made against me are false, and I unequivocally deny all of them, end quote. According to the Indy Star, Democrat Destiny Wells slightly outraised her Republican opponent in the third quarter of this year. Wells' campaign raised about $330,000 in the third quarter compared to Morrill's $311,000. However, when it came to cash on hand, Morales had about $482,000 on hand, while Wells had about $299,000 on hand. In an interview with WTHR, Morales walked through his top priorities as a candidate for Secretary of State. Morales, an alleged denier of the 2020 election outcome, cited election security as top priority. One of my goals, Bob, is to strengthen, to protect and expand photo ID laws. I want to make sure, you know, here in Indiana, we have a law that when you go to the polls, you show an ID, right? I want to protect it and expand it. So when it comes to voting, everyone needs to show an ID when it comes to all forms of voting. On the debate stage, Wells said that misinformation on the election process and the lack of voter turnout are two key issues she would address as Secretary of State. 
The Secretary of State's office has multiple roles, but this year, in 2022, post-2020 elections, the biggest policy challenge is running our elections in a free yet secure way. We live in the age of disinformation, and we have seen that transpire when the 2020 elections were contested, that the results were fair and accurate. It is the Secretary of State's job to make sure that we are educating the population as to our process in fighting this age of disinformation. As Secretary of State, running elections will be our top priority in addition to the other three divisions within the office. Additionally, Hoosiers are not turning out to vote. We are 46 in the nation in registered voter turnout. And so we want to make sure that while we are educating about our election process, we are also engaging the public and making sure that they are turning out to vote and making their voices heard. Lastly, during the October debate, Libertarian candidate Jeff Maurer said election security and transparency are top priorities of his campaign. Our top policy challenge necessarily has to be our election integrity. And so it's the sum total of all the details of getting together to make sure that our elections are transparent and accountable and that we can all see the process clearly and have confidence, restored confidence in our elections. So we have to look at all of campaign finance law and all of election law to see those opportunities where we can make our elections more secure, more transparent. Early voting for the 2022 election has already begun. The race for Indiana Secretary of State will be decided on Election Day on November 8th. That's all for your State House Roundup. For WFHB, I'm Lucinda Larnick. During the October 25th meeting of the Monroe County Community School Corporation Board of Trustees, board members discussed the 2023 budget. MCCSC Director of Business Operations John Kinney outlined a recommendation to approve next year's budget. It is recommended the board adopt the resolution of appropriations and tax rates for the 2023 budget. It is further recommended the board adopt the resolutions approving the 2023 capital projects plan and the 2023 bus replacement plan. The board received information regarding the 2023 budgets on August 23rd, when advertisement of the budgets was approved. The 2023 budgets were reviewed again on September 27th, when a hearing on the budgets was conducted. No objections to the budgets, tax levies, or tax rates have been received by the school corporation. The board is required by Indiana statute to meet no later than November 2nd, 2022, for the purpose of adopting a budget for the upcoming year. Appropriate notices to taxpayers were published for the September 27th hearing on the proposed budgets and the time, date, and location of the meeting to adopt the proposed budgets and plan. Having met the statutory requirements regarding publication of the hearings on the proposed 2023 budgets and plans, <laughs> The administration recommends the board approve resolutions adopting these budgets and plans. The school board approved the budget unanimously. Next, Dr. Deborah Pinker and Dr. Aaron Stalbum gave a presentation about the professional learning equity goal in the school's corporation's strategic plan. Dr. Pinker explained the equity goal. Thank you, uh, President Scher, Dr. Hoswald, and members of the board. 
As he mentioned, we're excited to be here to talk about equity goal number two. The rationale for this is to empower staff and school board through relevant learning experiences, uniting these stakeholders around the MCCSE shared vision and work. And on the right-hand side, you can see kind of the schedule that we'll be using throughout this school year. Definition and context. We wanna make sure that we're all working from the same perspective. The professional learning results in equitable and excellent outcomes for all students when staff and school board are continuously immersed in professional learning cycles that prioritize rigorous content, transformational processes, a culture of collaborative inquiry, and of course, the structures necessary to prioritize professional learning. On the right-hand side, we have a word cloud. We did ask our administrators to write down some of their thoughts about professional learning. The words that are bold and bigger came up multiple times. So you can see teachers is a fairly large area there, PD, professional development, professional learning, staff, and of course, time is often a limitation for professional learning. So the outcomes um, that I wanna talk about, you may remember that Dr. Dr. Hauswald had Adam Twilliger present uh, last month about equity, access, and opportunity. And he spoke about maximizing student instructional time and increasing student academic results. We believe those same values are consistent for our professional learning, but we wanted to add two more, cultivating professional learning and securing structures for relevant and meaningful professional development. We have a brief narrative down there below that a system for professional learning ensures that all MCCSE stakeholders are engaged in professional development that prioritize personalized growth and continuously focus on equity and excellence for students, staff, and board members. Dr. Stalbum walked through feedback from the community regarding the school system's goals when it comes to equity and professional learning. She also read feedback from staff on the goal as mentioned in the strategic plan. We also, um, as with every uh, equity goal or every goal, not just equity, but every goal that we're presenting on, we asked for feedback. And so we had some community feedback provided to us in the form of statements. Some of those statements included, we need to invest in our teachers through professional development and compensation. Another statement of, I would like opportunities for staff to learn too. And then of course, just, I appreciate the academic and social opportunities for students at MCCSC and providing with educators with professional development will make those opportunities stronger. So we certainly appreciate that feedback provided from community members. We then gathered feedback from staff as well. That feedback came more in the form of statements than questions. We have generated some themes from those statements and themes of a need to continue to prioritize and personalize our PD offerings to ensure our PD is results-oriented, leveraging that collective knowledge that we know we have throughout MCCSC, and then to provide ongoing and job-embedded professional learning cycles. There are some quotations on the right. I will not read them on all. However, one of um, those that we chose as really encompassing what our strategic plan is about is that PL should match our philosophy of learning for students through access, options, opportunity, and choice. Dr. Stalbum asked the school board how they will engage in continuous training on their roles and responsibilities. Superintendent Jeff Haswald responded. I can answer that, and board president sure can, and we can have a conversation. But the answer is, our board oftentimes has um, um, training throughout the year. We've kind of entered into a cycle of two of those a year. I know board members have asked for um, a specific training on kind of roles and responsibilities, and that oftentimes 
we schedule in January um, of um, of odd years when we have new board members take place. So we we do are working. We do have board learning opportunities. And I know we're working on expanding that. So um, I, I know that the board member was asking the question, but also was just wanting to make sure that when we within our strategic plan, the board's been very clear that it, when we talk about professional learning of staff and of our teachers. We make sure that we offer professional learning for the board. I think we've kind of demonstrated that since the strategic plan has been created, and, and I think we'll continue to do so. During public comment, Bloomington resident Ruth Eit raised concerns about the new Student Equity Ambassador Program. She argued that students were not given a meaningful voice with the program. My name is Ruth Eit. I am a supporter of public education. I'm a member of the Moreau County NAACP. I'm concerned that our students of color are facing ongoing challenges within MCCSC. I spoke at the August board meeting, and during that meeting, I was very excited to hear about the new Student Equity Ambassador Program that would engage students and give them a meaningful voice in the development of anti-racism policies. At that meeting, I stated that I was a lifelong learner. And I am continuing to learn from the MCCSE students who are speaking up against racism. I have learned that the students were not involved in setting the schedule or the agenda for the Equity Ambassador Program. I have learned that the anti-racism policy proposed by some students earlier this year has not been discussed during the meetings and that the students have had very little time to speak and to be heard. I have learned that I must be reminded again and again that a timeline and format that I think is a good one often is not one that truly encourages open and honest discussions. These students are good teachers. I believe the MCCSC administrators and board do want the Equity Ambassador Program to succeed. I'm here today to ask the administration to engage the students in the entire process including the planning, and to show up ready to listen to the students and to learn from them. The success of the program depends on both the students and the administration being accountable. Unless everyone is involved as a truly equal partner, I am afraid this program is going to do more harm than good. Please keep the community informed as you do this work. Our community is stronger when we learn from each other. Thank you for the work you do. The MCCSC School Board will meet again on Tuesday, November 15th. This month, Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the WFHB Local News and the League of Women Voters of Bloomington, Monroe County, welcome Maggie Sullivan of the Friends of Lake Monroe and Michelle Cohen of the Lake Monroe Water Fund. In the podcast, Maggie and Michelle share information about Lake Monroe, the quality of water and its impact on the Bloomington economy. We turn to host Jim Allison for more. You're listening to Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County, and this station, WFHB. I'm Jim Allison, your host, and Becky Hill is our producer. We're pleased to say that you can find Civic Conversations every month on WFHB at 93.1 and 98.1 FM. Today, we're pleased to welcome two guests. We have Maggie Sullivan of the Friends of Lake Monroe 
and Michelle Cohen of the Lake Monroe Water Fund. Welcome to Maggie and Michelle. Thank you. Thanks. Now, ever since there was a Bloomington, ever since this town began, this town has struggled mightily off and on periodically with the problem of drinking water, which raises the question of Lake Monroe. Tell us about Lake Monroe, starting first with some history. When and why was it created? Sure, this is Michelle speaking. Uh, the lake was created in the mid-1960s by the Army Corps of Engineers. It was built for flood control. Um, during that time, though, the city of Bloomington began to really see the need for a drinking water source. Uh, and the city started using the lake in about 1967 as the drinking water source. And it is now the sole source uh, serving the entire city, about 150,000 uh, people year round plus the 30,000 students um, when school is in session at IU. And that pumping that they do and treating of the water equates to about 15 million gallons per day. Um, so that's quite a significant uh, amount and it's really important to the community. The, the lake is not only used for drinking water. Uh, as you know, if you live around here, it sits about 10 miles southeast of Bloomington. Uh, and we have so many visitors to it every year, about 1.5 million folks visit the lake for boating, fishing, bird watching, et cetera. So it's critically important to the economy around here um, as well. Yeah, the lake has just a ton of different stakeholders. It's just, it provides municipal drinking water, it provides recreation, it provides lakeside residential housing, there's a dam out there that provides flood control and water level control. So tell us about all these stakeholders and how they interact exactly. This is Maggie and you're exactly right. There's a lot of stakeholders, different stakeholders involved and can be a little complicated how they interact. But generally speaking, the United States Army Corps of Engineers owns the lake and the dam. They manage the dam and control the water level based on conditions in the White River as the flood control purpose. Um, the Indiana Department of Natural Resources manages most of the property along the lake, the recreation areas like Payne Town, Fairfax, Morse Creek, and so they manage the recreational aspect by and large. There's a small portion along the lake that's part of the Hoosier National Forest that's managed by the United States Forest Service. They also have a recreational area, the Hardin Ridge Recreational Area. And then there are a few private entities, a couple of marinas that have leases to operate uh, on the lake. And then there's all kinds of people, as Michelle said, that come in for recreation, both locally and from much further away, that uh, all are passionate about the lake. And then the city of Bloomington operates their drinking water treatment plant on the lake. And as Michelle said, it's 15 million gallons of water per day that comes out and is treated and distributed to Bloomington and Monroe County. Okay, Maggie, tell us about your organization, Friends of Lake Monroe. When was it formed and why? Friends of Lake Monroe was founded in 2016. Uh, there was a group of people who were concerned that the lake wasn't getting the attention it needed to make sure that it stays sustainable, that the water quality stays high, since it is such an important part of our community. And they started out with a lot of kind of casual events of doing some trash cleanups and getting people together to go boating. But from pretty early on, their goal was to create a watershed management plan for the lake. Uh, and that was published just this spring, 2022. 
And a watershed management plan looks at the lake itself, but it also looks at the watershed. So there's 440 square miles of land spanning portions of Monroe, Brown, and Jackson counties that eventually drain into Lake Monroe. So anything that's on the ground in that area uh, when it rains can get washed in, whether you're talking about sediment or animal manure or anything that's dumped fertilizer. And so the big concern is how can we manage the land and change land use upstream in order to minimize the amount of pollutants getting into the lake. And that's what Friends of Lake Monroe is focused on. Okay, thanks, Maggie. Uh, over to Michelle now. Michelle, please tell us a bit about the Lake Monroe Water Fund. When was it formed and why? Sure. Uh, the Water Fund was formed in 2021 officially. Uh, there had been an exploratory group prior to that uh, starting in about 2017. Um, and the purpose for that was to look and see in the care and management of the watershed, you know, kind of what was a, a, a stumbling block or a missing piece and being able to um, do some of the projects that would help protect the water quality. And uh, what that group found was that the funding was the missing piece, um, that there were a lot of studies being done and a lot of good work being um, done as far as knowing what to do, but to actually put those into place, uh, there needed to be some sort of financial um, framework. So uh, the Nature Conservancy uh, worldwide has set up uh, multiple water funds. And the idea behind those is to fundraise and get resources, financial re resources from the beneficiaries of the lake um, and to put that money into upstream projects. So that's what happened here. Um, it was initiated by a, a kind of a spark from uh, Nature Conservancy and then the fund formed as its own entity. Um, and we're one of 17 in the United States now. Um, and one unique thing about us is we're proactively formed. We didn't have a crisis that was an impetus for us to form. So that's a really um, great thing. We can actually act ahead of time and prevent issues. Okay, tell us a bit about the two organizations. Do your two organizations work in partnership or in collaboration? And if so, how does that work? Yeah, um, so our organizations are both uh, 501c3 charitable organizations. Um, we both have uh, voluntary actions as our main focus. You know, we're not um, regulatory bodies in any way. Um, so we kind of share those same ideals. And the other thing that is um, great about what we can do together is, as I said before, our main focus is trying to get um, funding to happen for different projects throughout the watershed. And so um, one example of doing that happened in the past several years is a stream gauge that was put in to the Northwest corner of Jackson County. Um, to, to make some measurements there and to collect some data. And friends helped identify, you know, the location and the type of gauge that was needed. And the water fund helped to find the funding to get that to happen. And so there were a lot of other players involved as well. Um, but that's just one example of how we can collaborate. Okay, from what you've told us already, it's obvious that there's got to be a lot of different governing bodies involved with Lake Monroe. Tell us about their various responsibilities and their various authorities. And tell us how they coordinate, how they intersect and interact. 
Well, we've already talked about there are a number of entities directly involved with the lake. And then when we start looking at the watershed, it becomes even larger. So now we're adding in additional counties, the town of Nashville, a lot of federal land and state land in Hoosier National Forest, Brown County State Park, Yellowwood. Um, and so there's an increasing number of people involved. The challenge for a lot of governing bodies is they are restricted geographically. So if you're in Bloomington, you're responsible for Bloomington and the lake is not in Bloomington. And so there has been quite a bit of collaboration. I feel like groups like Friends of Lake Monroe and Lake Monroe Water Fund play an important role in keeping Lake Monroe at the front of the conversation and really focusing on water quality and long-term sustainability, which is not really any one entity's responsibility. So it's easy for it to fall through the cracks. And in fact, Friends of Lake Monroe is hosting a watershed summit next week. And we're bringing together about 50 representatives from different stakeholder groups to really emphasize the plan and the actions that we feel need to happen and trying to help each organization identify how they're going to get involved. Okay, fasten your seatbelts and let's talk about the future. How long do you think Lake Monroe is going to be able to serve its present purposes? Can you give us both a best case scenario and a worst case scenario? It's a hard question to answer, and I'm not going to venture into actual numbers, um, but we all know the lake is not going to last forever. Reservoirs eventually fill with sediment and fail. Uh, that's just the nature of how things work. Streams move sediment. It stops when it hits the dam and settles out. Uh, our study estimates about 36,000 tons of sediment is accumulating in the lake every year. Uh, and it sounds like a lot, but it is a big lake. It's the biggest lake in Indiana. So I would say short term, we're not in any immediate danger, but we really need to be addressing things now because it is over time that these things have an impact and we want to maximize the length of time that we have this lake. That's our drinking water source, our recreational destination. And when we do start to see issues, it may be localized within the lake. Already you'll hear anecdotal stories from people who say, I used to fish in this spot and it used to be deeper than it is. And um, so it's likely we'll see some changes over the next few decades that may be visible in some spots, but it'll be a while before the whole lake is impacted. Okay, thank you. I have an October 6th letter from the U.S. Forest Service about its plan to log and to burn quite a lot of land in the Lake Monroe watershed, which of course is the main drinking water source for Bloomington and Monroe County. What do you do? What do you two think about that? I'll start off. Uh, so um, our organization doesn't have a, an advocacy arm or anything like that, but just personally, um, it's it's interesting to me uh, to learn more about forestry. And, you know, a lot of times people's first reaction is to just think, well, what, you know, what's going on? What's this burning business and <laughs> that sort of stuff. So I encourage people to really kind of look at um forest management and the practices um, of forestry and to just think about how, you know, human beings have been managing uh, forests for a long time and maybe made some choices in the past that are affecting what happens now. For example, um, I think a lot of the land was uh, replanted at the same time. So you have a lot of the same types of trees that have grown up and they're the same age and that can cause challenges as the forest grows um, and they would all kind of be um, aging out at the same time. 
I know that there's a lot of effort to try to get the oak hickory forests back into health. And part of that is calling out some of the um, other growth that is there. So there's a lot to it. And I would just encourage people to really take a, a strong look at, you know, kind of what the purposes are um, behind some of those things. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Maggie and Michelle for telling us all these things that we all ought to know more about Lake Monroe, and more besides. Uh, and to our listening audience, thank you for listening to us on Civic Conversations. This is Jim Allison of the League of Women Voters, Wilmington, Monroe County. The League is a nonpartisan, grassroots, citizen-led organization that has fought since 1920 to improve our government and to engage all citizens in the decisions that impact their lives. Next month's guest will be journalist Steve Hinnefield, Hinnefeld, I'm sorry, and our topic is going to be what happens when a community loses its local news sources. WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specialising in solar hot water, solar electricity and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com.